Hi, welcome to the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. For months, we take time to prepare and educate ourselves on this new adventure of motherhood. But as we all know, once the baby is born, we're still left with so many questions and need all the help we can get. Women really should have a sense of empowerment as they begin to experience these life-changing moments. And no one mother has it all figured out. However, the more informed we are, the better decisions we can make that will positively affect us and our family. And that's what this podcast is about. Sharing honest, raw, and real conversations about motherhood, life, and all of the crazy, messy, beautiful in-betweens to hopefully educate, empower, and support the next mother on her motherhood journey. So sit back and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Mamas Know Best. We got something to say podcast. I am on with a very special guest. This is Dr. Kara Ayers, who is the Associate Director and Associate Professor at the University of Cincinnati Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, which is a part of Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. She's a co-founder of the Disabled Parenting Project and researches parenting with a disability. Dr. Ayers infuses the mantra, nothing about us without us, into her scholarly and community-based pursuits. She and her husband are disabled parents to three children ages 4, 11, and 14. The Disabled Parenting Project seeks to inform social policy through the development of resources created by and for the disabled parenting community and to promote social justice for disabled families. Her mission is perhaps a bit more simple, straightforward. She wants to increase the visibility of disabled parents because they exist. Dr. Ayers, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm very excited for this conversation. Before we go into the Disabled Parenting Project and your journey with that, really, why don't you tell my listeners a little bit more about who you are, family, career, anything you'd like to share, and then we'll jump into that. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this topic. It's close to my heart personally and professionally, so I could talk forever about it, but we'll we'll keep it uh, brief today. So a little bit about me. I grew up in Kentucky and really uh, didn't know a lot of other people with disabilities growing up. I have osteogenesis imperfecta, which is a condition that it's one of hundreds of conditions that cause dwarfism. So I'm a little person and also it makes my bones break easily. So I use a wheelchair for mobility and had a lot more fractures as a child, thankfully, than as an adult, but still, you know, have to be cautious in navigating around the world. In terms of hobbies, you know, they're a little bit sparse, I think, just because of the season of life. Very busy with work and also with three kids, but my hobbies are very authentically I think that I love watching my kids grow and do their different activities, especially now that we're sort of carefully reemerging after COVID. I uh, appreciate those opportunities like following my daughter in gymnastics. And my son is actually part of a podcast team with his middle school that he gets really excited about. And my four-year-old is taking dance. So I know it sounds cliche that like those are my hobbies, but I just am really appreciating watching them take part in those activities now. And then I love to read. I try to make myself read outside of what I study and research and write about just to kind of like separate my worlds a little bit because I live and, you know, I live and work in disability spaces. So sometimes that can be a lot. But so I love, you know, thrillers and fiction and I try to keep it different than my work in academia. But And actually, I have a question about that because I was just, I'm trying to set my boundaries and do things. And I was thinking how to go from academia type things or researching things within my own business, 
but then also add in books for fun. So do you do it like every other day or do you finish <laughs> one book and then go to a group? Like, how do you do that? Yeah. I am interested in that. Well, I usually have like one going audio book and then one going like Kindle or hardback book that I read like before bed or something like that. And so I really just have only one of those if I'm going to have one of those because I genuinely like I love kids literature too. So I have to like contain myself from buying way too many kids books but I think there are worse things to buy too much of but our shelves are like bursting but I'm really fascinated by the way that we message around diversity for kids and kids Mm -hmm. literature and in our house we we sometimes read a book and then say like oh why do you think you know they had the scary characters have we just read a My Little Pony book where the the scary characters had like a fake beak a fake leg and an eye patch and we talked about like oh you know we know a lot of people who have prosthetic legs or and they're not scary and but you know so so some of our books are not like perfect examples of what we want to see but we talk about why they're not and so yeah I try to at least have one of my books like more for fun and my husband reminds me like a book on the pandemic is not fun because I went through like this phase where I was listening to books about the 1918 yeah. you know, influenza pandemic. And he was like, no, uh, that cannot count as your fun book. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, it's, it's different than <laughs> so. he's keeping you accountable, which yeah. is good. But no, I, I thank you for sharing that because I also have a love for reading and trying to pass that to my four year old son. And I hopefully he will. I mean, we read all the time, but I was trying to figure out how to juggle between research reading and all of that, which is not my favorite thing and going diving into the books that I do love, like memoirs and biographies and all of that. So thank you for sharing that. Okay, now let's get into what else you love to talk about, which is the Disabled Parenting Project. Now, are your children disabled? So one of our children is we we have a funny, so my oldest was the oldest for a while, and then she was the youngest, and now she's the middle, because we had her, she's 11 now, and then when she was about four, we pursued adoption of our son in China, and he was seven at the time, so when he came home, she was the, the younger sister, although it, it worked out really beautifully, because she really taught him a lot of language skills as he was learning, you know, all new everything, so her role has kind of you know been an interesting little sister role she's always very much respected that but also has been a teacher in a lot of ways and of course Eli taught us immeasurable things too when he came home Um, he was like a little ball of fire when he came home at seven just so excited and curious about everything and maintains that curiosity but now is like a you know, cool 14 year old. He's like too cool for us. But, and then our four year old is definitely the youngest and, and wears that proudly. So our two girls do not have disabilities, which was somewhat unexpected for our family. We had them, you know, in the traditional sense. And we're sometimes asked that because we have genetic disabilities and sometimes people do pursue, you know, technology to influence that, uh, to influence their outcomes of passing on a disability or not. For us, we were only concerned about the outcome of double dominance, where fetus or a baby inherit both forms of OI. And it typically doesn't result in a baby that survives birth. So often it's very early natural termination of pregnancy where you don't know that you're pregnant, actually. But there's not a lot of literature around this. And so, of course, like given those outcomes, that was really the only outcome we were concerned about. But Given the odds, we had a 75% chance that both of our girls would have a type of OI, our disability. So it was actually interesting that both of their outcomes were 
the less expected one for us. So a little bit of a flip in that I hear of a lot of parents who unexpectedly have a child with a disability said, you know, this is not what we were planning or expected. And for us, we were planning for kind of whoever graced us with their presence. But odds told us that we needed to prepare for babies with our condition, which is a different you know, different considerations in terms of child care for a baby who fractures easily, even baby equipment, those types of things. So for us, it was different challenges to learn to parent two kids that walked early. Both my girls ironically walked at like nine, 10 months and were running. So yeah, just a different set of opportunities with their birth. Sure. So, so they don't. And then how was that? And like you said, you know, to you, you're like, look, the fact that they're here, they're healthy. They heard that, that, was what mattered. Did you find it challenging to parent? Well, which I know we're going to get into the inspiration and why you felt compelled to create the Disabled Parenting Project. But yeah, how was it parenting while disabled? What was that like of it presenting your own challenges? Yeah, I think we have this um, interesting phenomenon in disability studies. We call it the disability paradox, where it's hard, if not impossible, as humans to imagine our life as disabled. So we, we just don't do that very well. But for me, you know, I've never not been disabled. So I think one of the big challenges was, was figuring out different ways of doing things that didn't necessarily mirror the same approaches that non-disabled people take, because sometimes they're not. So we have the same goal in mind. I need to get, you know, my baby to the car so that we can go, let's say to her doctor's appointment. But For me, as an example, like carrying a car seat was never an option. Those are huge. There's no way that has worked for me to carry them. And some people do, you know, finagle that with their wheelchairs. There are ways to carry car seats and wheelchairs, but not not one that I found that worked for me. So I tried to keep like our goals in mind and then kind of be more out of the box and creative with our strategies. And sometimes there just aren't you know, I, I'm not a magician. (laughs) Sometimes parents with disabilities will write me and say, now I really want to know what you did during those toddler times. And those were super hard, you know, and we really had to make choices as family. And I don't have a magic solution of how to get across, you know, a, a dangerous parking lot safely for certain ages. So we had a number of strategies that we use strollers if we needed to, so that the baby was secure and not going to run. But also we had to make choices about, you know, we're not going to go to that grocery store at that time on my own. That may be something that we want to do when we can go as a family or go with some support. But for us, it was never the end of the world. And thankfully, there's been so many services that have popped up. I mean, in the last few years related to like clickless pickup and delivery, all of that has really helped with the toddler challenges of just navigating the world while they're still oblivious to the dangers of cars and, and that sort of thing. So sometimes it's, it's tough decisions. And I think in part, that was really what inspired the Disabled Parenting Project was having the opportunity to talk to other people going through those, those, those joys and also challenges and be creative together and not feel that judgment that you can feel with other people. For sure. Because I would imagine, I mean, not being disabled, the toddler years are hard. And I remember trying to carry 
the car seat myself and having my own anxiety of, of being alone. So I can imagine if there was something hindering and really making it difficult, how that would be. When did you create it? Was it after you became a mom? Yeah, it was kind of in tandem. I'm trying to think of, oh my gosh, when we, was it, I think 2012? <laughs> oh, wow. I think, I'd have to double check that. I'm not great at history of DPP, but it was definitely in those early years of my um, first daughter. And then it kind of grew the initial funding of the Disabled Parenting Project is really a a fun story, I think, in that it was kind of like a Shark Tank-like experience where you pitch your idea really quickly to this group of, like, people that we're going to choose to award these small grants to. And after our, our founder, Robin Powell, described the idea, one of the people on the panel said, but are there disabled parents? And so, of course, we thought like, oh my gosh, we have no shot at this because this person doesn't even know we exist. But so we were really pleasantly surprised when we were awarded the funding and then were able to create the website. And and then the community, you know, has really built itself in an authentic way, not only of parents, but I think the membership of prospective parents is also really important in that, People with disabilities are exploring these ideas, even as adolescents. And I remember having those questions and wondering and about how this would work and sometimes getting hung up on really seemingly now small things like trick or treat. You know, we just went through Halloween and thinking about like, well, how would I take my kids trick or treating? Because so many houses are inaccessible in terms of like to get up to the door. Like, how would I do that with them? Like my mom did with me. And and I was the kid, you know, in the wheelchair that was also waiting at the bottom of the steps. And my brother would go up and say like, hey, can I have a piece of candy for my sister? So it's really cool though, to see some progress in our communities at large, because now we're seeing more, you know, I saw more communities around our area remind that let's continue doing some of the things that we did for COVID where we came to the ends of our driveway because that makes it so much more accessible for families with disabilities, whether it's the kid or the parents. So, but I just remember things like that kind of really getting stuck in my head as a young adult and a prospective parent. So we welcome those individuals to the Disabled Parenting Project too, to ask your questions, you know, talk about your concerns and your hopes for the future. And we want people to enter parenthood with your eyes wide open as much as they can be, because we know that parenting always surprises us. <laughs> we want people to to have as much confidence as they can with knowing what to expect. Awesome. So why don't you talk about some of the misconceptions, some of the biases that disabled parents face? I know it's crazy because again, if you're not into it, you don't think about it or know someone who's going through it. So I didn't even think about that of Halloween. And what's funny is I I remember seeing people that came to the door and I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And I'm thinking of COVID. I'm like, oh yeah, I like it. I didn't expect how it was for me more convenience. I'm like, okay. And then I was like, well, maybe we'll do that next year. To your point, I don't know if maybe there was someone who could have or was in a wheelchair. So tell me about other things. And yes, any other misconceptions, biases or things that you want to clear up now? For sure. Well, even before COVID, I love the driveway idea because it still allows us to kind of have the neighborhood feel. But before that, our family was doing trunk or treats because they were much more accessible in that parking lots, you know, are, are flat and relatively closed off. And we were enjoying those when my girls were younger, especially, or my, when Hannah, my um, now 11 year old was younger and she was just, you know, our only child at the time, we did trunk or treats her first few Halloweens because that was much more accessible for us. And, you know, she got the Halloween experience and was totally fine with candy. She didn't care if it came from a house or a trunk or, or what, but 
I think other biases that people face is, well, there's a lot of curiosity, I think, about how exactly we live. And so I think when I look at what my kids face now, my my older kids, 14 and 11, you know, it's not uncommon that sometimes parents of their friends will kind of ask like a few extra questions about how we're doing and how do your parents manage this or that? And, you know, it's interesting because I think they probably think they're being very sly, but, <laughs> but my kids are like, they're fine because we always have a little bit more scrutiny, I think. And that sort of surveillance of parents with disabilities can really have a dark side as well. I have known of people that have had children's services called on them because their neighbors have had hypothetical concerns. So the story that stands out is a um, father with a spinal cord injury, he uses a wheelchair, was tossing ball with his son, who was about nine in the front yard. And a neighbor had looked out the window and had wondered what would happen if the ball rolled into the street. And so apparently, you know, her bias was that if a ball rolled in the street, the only safe way to get it would be a parent getting it. And how would the parent in a wheelchair get it? And so this whole kind of thing snowballed. And you see this happen sometimes where parents with disabilities are engaged in the child welfare system. And what's really scary is a few things. You know, one is that the child welfare system is not well trained about families with disabilities. They can be very unjust in the way that they're treated. But another concern is that for some opportunities, simply having a child welfare case open can be problematic. So there are certain high level jobs, not even really high level jobs, but certain jobs with the government that if you've ever had a children's services case open, you aren't eligible. Or I know I had a friend who was pursuing adoption and because they had had a case like this opened, it was closed immediately because it was found not to be accurate or valid, but because they had had a case opened they were not eligible to pursue the adoption. Wow. Yeah, so that scrutiny is a real problem. And I would say I want to stop there because for anybody listening, what would you then suggest? If someone has, and there was a word that you used, not a grievance, but if they have a, oh, what's going on, you know, or whatever, what would you suggest? Because what you're saying there are all really valid points that, yeah, that you could potentially change someone's life by that one phone call and steamroll something into that they probably didn't think would happen, right? Because of their ignorance of not knowing the system. So in instances like that, what do you tell people to say? Pause, think about it. Like, what what would you say to that? I think pause and think about it is a great place to start. We want to treat people the same. And so I understand that you have curiosities about how do we get the trash out or how do we, but, you know, we could probably have lots of curiosities about what goes on in people's homes and we don't necessarily have the right to that information. And we actually haven't been taught that with disability because, you know, we we've tried to bridge this divide by telling people, Oh, just ask. And that's sometimes okay. And usually I don't mind at all if especially a kid has a question about my disability and I take that opportunity to educate them. But unfortunately what, you know, is a reality is that just educating alone often doesn't change people. It kind of gives them some more information, like they're less curious about that, but it doesn't necessarily change their attitude or whatever it is. So we need more than education. We need fairness and nobody wants children to be in danger, but our current First of all, there are a couple important things here. First is that research tells us that parents with disabilities, including intellectual disabilities, are not more likely to abuse or neglect their children. So 
we can have some sense of, I don't ever want to feel, you know, secure or not to worry because we should all be worried about kids being abused or neglected, but is supported by research that because someone has especially a mild intellectual disability, they're not more likely to neglect or abuse their children. So that's helpful to know from research. Another important thing to think about is that our child welfare system is set up, and whether we agree with this or not, but it's not set up on the basis of hypothetical harm. So it's set up on the basis that because we know how traumatic it is to disconnect a family to remove a child from parents' custody, we don't do that hypothetically based on the idea of you might harm this child. We have to have due cause and evidence and and reason to know that this child is in, you know, danger or has been harmed or, you know, all of those above. And that's actually not the standard for parents with disabilities. And so that's really what introduces that unfair component. But you're right. A lot of people don't know that. And they think, I was legitimately worried. I was just doing my due diligence as a community member. But I think we've sort of seen that type of due diligence play out in other ways with racism and other things that, well, was your due diligence informed by a credible threat if we remove the bias? Correct. I was just going to say, or is it coming from a place of unconscious bias? Mm -hmm. Hence the stop and pause and say, what if, if I do this, what is that going to lead to? And is that where case in point, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think this is important for people to hear. And it's, if you saw that ball, then why not you come outside the door and be like, hey, you you know, or come out and be like, hi, you you know, I don't know, as opposed to you making that phone call and maybe just legitimately ask, I don't know, do you want me to go get in? If you, you know, if he looks at you like, yeah, my son can get it. Okay, cool. Then we're good. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're spot on. I do a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion for this organization that I'm a part of. I've been a part of the that committee for six years. And we're constantly talking about how it's not just race, it's also disability and finding equity in that inclusion with that, you know, removing unconscious bias, especially in regards to people who are different than you in any aspect, you know, if you were a redhead, if you were tall, and I was Mm -hmm. short, you know, because it becomes impactful with it. And I think a disability is even more so because to your point, it's also it's almost like taboo to talk about. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Am I going to say the wrong thing? How is that going to react? What would that be like? Going back to you, is there anything, any other ones? Or also, I will also add in here what you wish more people knew and understood about disabled parenting and disabled children. I think you're touching on it, but anything else you want to add to that? I think for some people, it's mind boggling that many disabled people have pride in their disability. Not everybody. And one of the challenges that we have with reaching parents with disabilities that we want to support is that a lot of people, when you say, you know, who's a parent with a disability, many people that are don't raise their hand and identify as that. Some of the grants that I'm currently working towards to support people have asked questions like, did you receive special education services in school? And, you know, now they're a parent. And so we start to learn more that way and figure out that this person does have a disability. But after they graduated from school, you know, they may not receive. There's a lot of misconceptions that, you know, all disabled people receive these benefits. You know, that's not the case. Most people are not connected to formal support systems. So you can think about that if you had a disability that made you eligible for special education and services in school, but you graduated, you really don't have any strong connection to the disability community. Your disability may not be visible. So you may not raise your hand and identify as disabled, but you may now be a parent with a disability. And so certain things like organizing your day or kind of those executive functioning skills that may come into play with certain disabilities like 
autism, ADHD, some other disabilities. So there is the aspect of identity in terms of who fits like our definition of a parent with a disability and who raises their hand and says, I'm a disabled parent. And identity and pride is really important. I mean, for our family, we take pride in our disability. We believe that many of our strengths aren't despite our disability, but are connected and with our disability, not only because of them, but we're not overcoming disability in our house. We don't believe in that perspective of success with a disability, that it can only be if you overcome it. And I think that's hard for people to grapple because we've been taught this idea of, well, wouldn't you want to get rid of it if you could? And I think people don't realize the like the richness that having these different perspectives brings to your life in so many different ways. Sure. And I'm going to, again, because I'm coming from the DEI perspective of having these kind of conversations, helping corporations institute more inclusive activities, thinking of the proper thing to say, what would you tell someone if someone did have a legitimate question? If someone met you, what is an appropriate thing to ask or should they not ask at all? How would someone start a conversation with you or someone with a disability that maybe they mean wholeheartedly and they just, you know, they're curious and they're like, hey, how can I help you? What are the proper things to say, to ask, to maybe not be so offensive and let those kind of inappropriateness come in? If it's a question of asking, can they help? Totally okay. And just got to accept the answer that's given. (laughs) I think that's really the only frustrating thing is that when people ask and then whatever the answer is, they do what they're going to do, whatever, whatever they wanted to do anyways, which just can make for like strange interactions with people. But I think when they have other questions, timing matters, you know, are, are we in the middle of the grocery store where I'm probably wanting to get out of there as much as you're wanting to get out of there? (laughs) The delivery matters. You know, I empower kids who are approached by other kids that say, what's wrong with you? That it's totally within your purview to say nothing and move on. Or if you feel like being informative, saying whatever your spiel is. So I think tone and timing, all that matters, but not to set it up as if you have to do it exactly right. I really appreciate good questions, especially when I can tell that the person has done a little bit of the work on their own or that they're willing to do that work after our conversation. Maybe they never have, which is okay, but I don't want them to come to to me and expect me to do all the work for them. You know, (laughs) like, um, it's like being an ally. It's like being an ally, right? Yeah. Same thing. It ties to all of that. It's not just up to people of color. It's not just up to the disabled community. It's not just up to the LGBTQ plus community. You have to be willing to do that work and put the ownership on yourself to really say, okay, am I just asking this question going to move on? Or am I going to look deep and say, okay, what do they really need? And how am I either contributing to this problem of whatever issues they are facing and what solutions I can bring? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I love those conversations and sometimes they pop up unexpectedly. So I don't, you know, want people to um, feel like they can't engage with people with disability. We want to be engaged with, sometimes we don't want to be engaged with only about disability. You know, I don't necessarily want to be your disabled friend. To your point, you're a doctor, right? So someone can also ask, well, what do you do? You know, what's your profession as opposed to just assuming you don't work or whatever assumptions Mm -hmm. might. No, I definitely encounter that, especially in a lot of healthcare settings. You're a woman. If you yeah. have a, dis- you know, it's like, it's like, no, you can't be, you, you can't not be this. And we can talk a lot about that in just different aspects, but what are some of the services programs that the Disabled Parenting Project provides? So the bulk of our work is really peer to peer connection support, 
getting people resources, information, and that looks in a very organic way in terms of people come up with some, well, they don't come up with, they're living out pretty creative or interesting scenarios, you know. But it's what's really been fascinating is in the beginning, we tried to figure out, okay, do we want to divide people by disability type? And we made a very intentional decision to keep it cross-disability. And so it's been really interesting that we've learned, I've learned strategies from my blind mom friends, you know, so disability type ends up mattering, I feel like so much less when you get into these different realms of adulthood and parenting. And that's why I kind of push back on our notion of the way we educate around disability is often very diagnosis specific. We teach people, you know, this is what my condition, osteogenesis imperfecta, like here are the symptoms. And, you know, when at the end of the day, None of that really matters in most of life. Of course, it matters for our healthcare and our treatment and all of that. But in terms of learning how I can, you know, navigate life as a parent with a disability, I've definitely learned from other parents who have physical disabilities like mine. I've learned some really cool strategies from moms with intellectual disabilities who have set up some good reminder systems to help them kind of remember parts of their day, good supports in place uh, to help with homework, which you know, I definitely run into homework challenges with my, you know, my sixth and eighth grader. Sometimes their homework is, I wish I had already set up somebody who, you know, I had on call to help with that. And some of the parents that I know who may have low literacy rates themselves, you know, have explored those options about what what to do in those cases. I mean, many people with disabilities are excellent problem solvers. And we have hone those skills because we've had to, because we've, you know, grown up in environments that are not built for us, nor particularly supportive of our needs. But we've learned to lift up our strengths and problem solve what we need to get around. And so I've learned a lot from other parents in that way. Our community is a virtual place. It's not an office that you can you know, go to, we have had some more formal requests for like, what's the data on this for maybe a program that wants to set up supports for moms with disabilities. And the three of us that are co-founders, myself, Robin Powell and Aaron Andrews, we're all data people. So we can, you know, get those findings and get them out to people. But most of the work we do is very community-based, community-driven and kind of from the grassroots up. I know your thing is to help disabled parents like one-on-one and building this strong community that they have a place to go, right? Just like, as you said, you've learned from each other. And I think that's wonderful. What about also doing some outreach to the community and teaching, going to schools or corporations? Because I'm sure that trickles down to HR and they have some, maybe someone disabled and they may have, I would imagine it might take it a step further than let's say someone like me who doesn't have a a disability and still has to leave work to go take care of my child. Do you also do things like that and trying to do like educational aspects in that workshops? I think that would probably fall more into, so our larger umbrella program is the National Research Center for Parents with Disabilities. And it was actually just refunded for another five years. So we're really excited about that work. And it definitely has broader capacity. There's definitely been a webinar in the last year about employment issues of parents with disabilities. I participated in one related to promoting your the social life of your child when you have a disability and what that's been like, particularly during COVID. And so the National Research Center not only conducts research, does policy analyses, but also kind of has this broader platform to do more of, of what you're speaking about. And under that work in the next 
several years, I'll be working on an intervention development, kind of what you mentioned of like the one-on-one work that will work with parents with intellectual disabilities around building up their parenting skills. And so that'll look a little bit more traditional of like one-on-one service. It'll be virtual. It'll be delivered by a peer. But most of our disabled parenting project work comes together naturally. People ask questions, other members of our community ask. And then another grant that I'm really excited about that's through the same overarching organization as the National Center for Research on Parents with Disabilities is the National, this is new, so I hope I get the name right, but the National Pregnancy and Disability Center. And so they are connected with the same PI Monica Mitra. And I'm excited about the pregnancy work because we'll actually be looking at the development of accessible birth plans for pregnant people with disabilities. And so looking at, and more you know, and then traditional, at first when I started this work, I, I didn't have a birth plan. I had two high-risk pregnancies, and I think they would have probably laughed at me if I would have asked for a birth plan because it was very, you know, set to how I needed it medically. But really, as I learned more about birth plans, they include so much more than I yes. misunderstood them to be. So we're going to be considering all sorts of access needs. You know, would headphones help a person who's in labor not have too much audio input while they're, you know, working? So yeah. So we'll have a broad range of things we'll consider and we're just getting started. So I'm excited to see. Yes. And actually, you. that's my jam because I come from the space with birthing, which is what started me into this. I mean, I had a home birth and not that I think everyone should. I think it should be your right to birth how you want. And I was very fortunate I had that opportunity to do so. But I say all that because we can get into the um, mortality rate with moms, the birth trauma that a lot of women face. So to your point, I think a lot of the misconceptions of a birth plan is that, well, because I want a natural birth or I don't want this, where it's, no, it's you knowing your rights. Okay, well, if I do have to have a C-section, then this is what I want. Um, This is who I want in the room. Do I want headphones? Do I want this? All of that falls into that. So that's a whole nother thing of how we support. I'm super excited about where that'll go. Yeah, and wherever you need help with that, please, because I'm supporting mothers. But I think at birth is also where it begins, right? Because I think that kind of sets you up as you're going into the most exhilarating, hardest, challenging, amazing moment of, you know, my life, you know, what you think is of a, of a mother, you know, parenthood. So that's awesome that that's, that's coming. So I would imagine that's what's next for the Disabled Parenting Project is really taking it a step further. Yeah, I'm excited to expand. And that'll allow me to kind of have formal academic time to, to work on these projects. I know Robin Powell is a visiting professor down in Florida. Aaron Andrews is a busy psychologist at a VA in Texas. And so all of us have kind of been keeping the Disabled Parenting Project afloat in the midst of our other roles. And so these two projects are exciting to me because I'll have some more effort to dedicate towards just just parenting work. I love that. I do a lot of other disability work along with parenting work. And I was going to say, so what if, let's say at my school, right, I find out that there is a disabled child or a, a parent that I see and I'm like, oh gosh, and they ask, or they're like, do they have programs? Would I be able to reach out to someone like you and to say, hey, is there somewhere you can come or do you know someone that can speak to the school and say, look, these are some things you can implement or these are some things to help with? Definitely. Perfect. I recommend people check out their USED in their state. You have at least one in every state. And USED is U-C-E-D-D. It's University Centers for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. So ours is the Cincinnati one, but we have two in Ohio and there's at least one in every state. So those would be a good place to start. Parents can also recommend books be added to the library to make sure that there's representation when their kids visit the library. They see characters 
different and similar to themselves. I love the metaphor of windows and mirrors. You know, we want to be able to look out and see people different and also look in a mirror and see people like ourselves and to reflect the diversity of our children. You know, we need a lot of diversity in books, thankfully. And actually, you said a good point before when you were like, when children come up, they're like, what's wrong with you? And I would also imagine a lot of this education starts when they're young. Hence Mm -hmm. the conversations when we're watching movies or reading books, Mm -hmm. so that when a child does grow up, they don't think it's okay to walk up to someone and say, what's wrong with you or not understand that people are different and have different circumstances. And that's okay. It doesn't make them more or less than who you are. Exactly. One other thing I say, tell people is that even if you're never having a conversation about disability in your home, your child is learning about disability. They're learning by what they don't see. They're learning by messages that media has unfortunately kind of taken a shortcut, lazy approach by not having to build a character, but just make them have, you know, a facial disfigurement and they're scary, you know, instead of having to explain the backstory of why this character is scary. And so those types of messages are being taught to all of us. So, you know, as parents, if we want to undo ableism, we have to actively talk about it and counter those messages. So, and I mean, I believe that in other things too, even if you're never talking about racism in your home, your children are learning about it and you're teaching them a lesson by not talking about it. The same is true with ableism. That's, that's so powerful and so true. There's a show and I don't know if you're familiar with it called 911 and maybe people have told you about it where the son has a disability. And I thought that was amazing that it's his character, the, the, the gentleman, he was a firefighter, his son, and I, I don't know the disability that he has, but he wears the braces. But I found, I thought it was amazing that they have this character and he actually is a disabled. So he's an actor and they have him. And I was like, oh, wow. I'm like, that's powerful that they show that. And they had parts of the show. And mind you, this is an action packed Fox show that's about like 911 calls. And they'll have nuances in between where this father like step in and think that his son is isn't capable of doing something and they've had this this child actor who has looked at me like dad I'm fine and I can do this so it's great how they're putting it is is my point in mainstream tv and that might be something so small but I thought that was huge considering we don't see that and if they do then it's maybe someone playing a disabled person or might take it the wrong way or to your point maybe make it scary it's so cool too that it seems like it's just part of the story too, like part of society. That it just happens that he just happens to have a child and they live fine. It was kind of cool, kind of cool to see that. Yeah, that's neat. I'll have to check it out. So I know you said it's a lot organic. People can come to you. Do you have a Facebook group or do you have groups where people can come? Yeah, our Facebook group right now is our most active way that people connect. We have a couple of membership questions like many groups do, but we do take that process pretty seriously in that our kind of only rule is that people are either parents or prospective parents. We've had some requests where people have said, well, I'm the spouse of a disabled person. Can I join? And we actually respectfully ask that it only be disabled parents or prospective parents for a few reasons. We want to create that unique space. And uh, unfortunately, there's also the reality that so 26 out of 50 at last count states still have policies on the books where children can be removed from custody on the basis of disability alone. And in most cases, that doesn't happen where, you know, children's services rolls up and dramatically takes the kids with no warning. But where it does happen is in custody cases. And so when a couple divorces, the parent with a disability is immediately at a huge disadvantage for even visitation, basic, fair 
you know, kind of co-parenting expectations are no longer in reach because the law in many of these states states that a disabled parent is not qualified, unfit. And all it takes, you know, is the attorney of the non-disabled parent to utilize that. And we've seen that happen uh, unfortunately, you know, frequently. So there's just been awful cases of a recent one that I attempted to provide her some support was she was looking at a new house with her then husband, um, ended up falling through a floorboard that they didn't expect, sustained a spinal cord injury. And, you know, for reasons that aren't my business or I don't know, the couple ended up divorcing. But while she was in rehab, her husband immediately filed. So she had not had a chance to adjust to this disability and figure out. But her children were, I think, nine and 12. So we're not talking about, you know, she didn't even have to figure out like the infancy period, which is difficult physically. So by the time she arrived home from rehab of this, you know, injury, she no longer had custody or, or fair visitation with her kids. And so for that reason, we're fairly protective of the community. But in terms of, of spouses, not that we think all spouses are, are going to do that in any way. But unfortunately, the unfair policy has been used most frequently in divorce proceedings. So. And if all it takes is one and then you have to protect everyone in the community. So I completely understand. Okay, so now that we've talked about the amazing things that the Disabled Parenting Project does, I want to know a little bit more about Dr. Kara. Is it Kara? Do they call you Dr. Kara? Yeah, no, Kara. Call me Kara. Yeah. You worked hard. So absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so what do you do to um, relax and unwind for the day? And do you have a morning and nighttime routine? It seems like you've got a lot going on. And if so, what does that look like? Well, my morning and night routine look differently since COVID, of course. Like I'm still working from home. So have tried to kind of diversify that by, I used to like commute in, listen to my NPR, get all my podcasts going. And I missed that. I realized that a few months in, I was like, so I try to kind of like factor that in other parts of my day, (laughs) even though I don't have the commute, which I don't miss anymore. But my days start pretty early, get the kids out and like, tiers, you know, three different bus times, three different. I do really love that opportunity, though, they get to be a more full part of the morning and evening routine, because I, I also used to travel a great deal for work, at least once a, once a month was going to DC to work on policy issues. And, you know, all that abruptly ended and hasn't restarted. So I, it will restart in some ways, but I definitely want to approach my travel differently and kind of prioritize because I've realized my value for consistently being home during those routines day and night. And my um, husband is our primary kind of caregiver during the day. So he doesn't work outside the home and manages all the kids' doctor's appointments and all that. So I'm really thankful um, and recognize that that is a huge opportunity for me to focus in on work during the day and I think, how do I relax? That triggers everyone. That is the question that everyone's yeah. like, yeah, I, I'm working on it. I am working on it. I have a service dog that I got matched with just, we went to the, we went to work at my hospital together just three weeks before COVID hit. And since then we've both been working from home, but he's actually been like an unexpected anxiety reducer. He's very in tune to like feelings and he's a lab. He'll come up and put his head on my lap. And so he is like a a stress reliever. So sometimes I just take a moment to sit on the couch with him and, and just chill out and try to be in the moment. I had a mentor that I really admired that when I went into his office for supervision, he always had a screensaver that said, be here now. And so I do try to remember that but it's it's hard in this stage of life (laughs) yeah 
It is. And I think when you have things, when you want to change the world and you have things that you're trying to do, trust me, I understand. But I love that. I love sometimes you just need to be in that moment. And if that's what makes you happy, then roll with it. What is your favorite book? Probably All the Light We Cannot See. I think that's how it's worded. I'm a big fan of historical fiction, like World War Two. I've always been, I was a bit of an odd kid, like about my obsession with the Holocaust and reading about it. And so, yeah, either that or Nightingale by um, Kristen Hanna stands out too. So, and those are both like historical fiction. If, if I could give a plug for a new release nonfiction yes. would be Demystifying Disability by Emily Liddell is incredible really good like a primer about a lot of what we've talked about today actually like how do you start these conversations would be a really great book for parents to undo their own ableism and then if you want to go a little further disability visibility by alice wong has individual stories by people and so i love that format too because it's kind of like these mini memoirs but not memoirs but like moments of life that are yeah change making so very cool what is a favorite movie of yours or current show that you're binge watching oh i think it's called rising phoenix it is a documentary on netflix about the paralympic paralympics i competed in the 2004 paralympic games in athens i swam yeah so i really love adapted sports as a way to teach empower compete but there's also a lot of ableism wrapped into Paralympics, especially, unfortunately, our current U.S. system. But what I love about the Rising Phoenix documentary is it wasn't so U.S. centric. A lot of documentaries pretend like we're the only country in the world. <laughs> and so they actually went outside and had Paralympians from other countries. And that was awesome to me. It's a beautiful film, too. So Awesome. Yep. What is your favorite item in your home? Gosh, we're, we just got new carpet. And so right now I feel like... I don't like any of the items in my home because they're all like piled into a pile and I need to put them all back. But, oh, that one's tough. Like our comfy couch. I love it when all our family is like cozied up on the couch. That'd probably be it. Yeah. Nice. Who makes up your village? Oh, good one. Definitely, you know, family, whether it be chosen or, you know, biological, our community, you know, since the... 2016 election I've been much more intentional about my village you know our family's made up my son is an immigrant we're disabled so I think in some ways it feels like we kind of closed ranks in a way with our village but I now hope to look at it as just being more intentional and thoughtful and who makes up our village awesome I love that great answer I was reading something about that today someone had written that it was like just because you've known someone for a long time, I think sometimes, especially women do that if you have a best friend that's been around and it's like, sometimes you grow apart and there's a couple of friends of mine that we've had and I felt a little guilty and sometimes you just got to accept that that's the path and maybe you'll reconnect and you, you know, your village is who your village is at that moment and what you need. If you could travel anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Oh, wow. Pretty much anywhere because I haven't gone anywhere. I'm excited to get back to D.C. I love Washington, D.C. in a lot of ways. Just the hopefulness that it brings for me related to policy making a difference in people's lives. And so probably D.C. I usually get to go in the spring right around the cherry blossom time. Uh, I hear it's beautiful. So I have. Yeah, it's really nice. I don't go to the actual festival because it's like wall to wall people and that's not my thing. But just seeing seeing them. It's good for me. Yeah, I hear it's beautiful then. What has motherhood taught you? Uh, to expect the unexpected, I think. I've always been pretty good, even like 
I remember in high school, a lot of my friends saying like, I would never do this or I will never do that. And I remember thinking then like, well, I don't really know what I'm going to do. So I'm not going to say I'm never going to do anything. But So I've always been like decent at that. But I think kids remind you of that even more. Like, even if you think you won't do this as a parent or you will do this or your kids will never do that, you know, they teach you to expect the unexpected and to roll with the punches and be resilient. They do. And I think if most of us understood that and stopped trying to force many things, you know, in whatever aspect that is, maybe having them be a certain way or do a certain thing, I think it would just make so many things easier. It is what it is. Any final thoughts to the podcast world? Oh, gosh, I think, you know, it's it's all a process. We're all doing our best in most cases. And I really like the, the idea of, you know, when we learn better, we do better. So I don't ever think it's too late to learn more and do better. And I think that's what it's been fun to, today to talk about, you know, favorite books and favorite movies and podcasts. But I think a lot of that comes from like a drive to learn. And a lot of that drive for me is, is to do better. Not because I think I'm doing badly. I'm doing the best I can. Like I try to remember a lot of other people are, but I think, you know, we're all in this together. And so learn better, do better. I love that. Well, Dr. Kara Ayers, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for sharing your story, uh, for bringing light to the Disabled Parenting Project. I'm sure my listeners take a lot of a lot of good notes and, you know, maybe think differently if maybe they would have had a different idea, perspective. So, yes. So thank you and, you know, continued support with what you're doing. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank you for joining me this week on the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, NGC Consulting, where you can find them at NicoleGConsulting.com. For more motherhood resources, check out TheMotherhoodVillage.com. Make sure to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss an episode. And if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or recommendation to a friend works too. And join us next time for another amazing conversation. Continued blessings to you all for love and light.